Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Yeah. Uh, you know, the guy who did the, like, the vocalist who said, you've got mail. You've got for, mail. For America Online. Uh, like, he he wasn't a voice actor. He was just, like, an office guy. Yeah, he's just who they had available. So it's not like he went on to, like, this big lucrative career saying jingles. That guy should get a nickel every time anyone heard that. He should. He, yeah. he should have gotten, however much he got, he should have gotten more. He became not only the voice of like, AOL, but, uh-huh. like, the voice of the internet. He's, like, universally mm. recognized. What he said was a movie title. Yeah, so, he uh, should at least get a cut of that. Uh but he ended up, like, to make ends meet, like a lot of us, taking other gigs, and he was, like, an Uber driver for a little bit. Yeah. There's and, no shame in that, by the no, way. Absolutely. Not at all. A lot of people, like, when those news stories come yeah. out, like, oh, look at that. Like, no, it's actually, he, a, a, he's doing work. He's working his butt off. Good for mm. him. It's a bit disappointing that he got screwed over by a corporation yeah, well, that, that made, like, that he, bank off of, like, monetizing yeah, his that, 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 uh, that uh, Somebody we know had to join the gig economy is a, a little bit of a... Makes the heart break a little bit, but he's working. That's good. Good for him. I want, but yeah. he was recognized oh. occasionally. Like he'd say, "Oh, thanks for coming in," and it's like you you sound really familiar. Like nobody could put their finger on it. It's like, "Oh well, have you heard this? You've got mail. Oh, it's you. Oh, I want." And then, I want of course, some- the next question is, "Why are you driving an Uber?" I want someone. I want someone to do like you know, like what Tarantino did for Rob Forster and Pam Greer, mm. just like. Give them a really great voiceover gig, yeah. And like bring them back and like, yeah. give them like their own starring role in an animated like, series. Like he plays the new Star Scream or something. Yeah, well, Star Scream. I've well, maybe not Star Scream. This is like a mellow Star Scream. He, he, yeah, very mellow. Okay, if we gonna do like Star, Star Scream like, as a talk usually, show, usually like a, like an obnoxious guy, but yeah, do like a Space Ghost Coast to Coast, but with Star Scream. Just I would, the love, voice. I would love to see them. It's like, hey, welcome to. Chat chat with Starscream. It's like a Charlie Rose thing where the background is all black. And anyway, we need to get started. So uh, this is the podcast. We've got mail. Uh, this is where I, William Bibiani, mm. film critic for The Rap, Bloody Disgusting, Everybody Calls Me Bibs, and uh, Whitney the Beauty Seibold, uh, who Hello. writes for Everywhere Online. Uh, and if, if you're into the movie trivia schmodown, uh, one of my matches went up today. Yay! So, as, as of this recording. I'm going to say this right now. Without spoiling the match, that's one of my favorite matches I've seen all year. It was a pretty fun match. It's a really and entertaining the, match. It was competitive. Like, it mm. wasn't like a blowout like some of the more recent teams' matches have been. No, it, was high, it was high scoring. It was really close. I'm not going to tell you the, the outcome if yeah. you haven't watched it yet. Whether you yeah. won or lost, that's a really fun match. And everyone involved mm. should be really, really proud was, of the game they played. It, it was uh, me and Mark Edward Hoik versus uh, Video Drew and Tom. They uh, have a mysterious figure named Tom. They have the best gimmick in the Schmodown. They, they have a really great gimmick. It's they're, so they're unique le- and le- so weird. They're legitimately terrifying. Video Drew is is an, a, a weird and amazing person, and uh, we both kind of had pretty good entrances. And, and unlike some so. of the other like character teams, like the Wildberries, mm. they're really good at trivia. Like mm. the Wildberries have been good at trivia, but they're really spotty. Like they have a really terrible match and like one great match. They're good. Like they they had a losing record. Like when they started the the tournament, but like they clearly know movie trivia. Yeah, yeah. So it's really cool. Um, so please check out that match. Uh, my team Shazam is also currently playing. Uh, we have a game coming up with the Odd Couple, which is uh, two guys who both really want to take me down because I've destroyed them on multiple occasions. I <laughs> uh, can't wait to play that match. And uh, of course, uh, if you're in Los Angeles, come and check out the Schmodown Spectacular on December seventh. I will be playing at least one match, and if I defeat mm-hmm. Ben the Boss Bateman, uh, I will be playing Paulo Yama that same day uh, for the singles championship. 
I hope you win. I also hope I win. I think I might. Mm-hmm. I think I might. Anyway, moving on. Uh, we are, this is our letters podcast. This is where you control the conversation. Sorry for hijacking it for four minutes. Uh, you get to control the conversation. You get to ask us whatever you want. You get mm-hmm. to rebut our reviews, anything at all. Um, and you can do that by emailing us letters at critically acclaimed dot net. Mm-hmm. And uh, pretty much away we go. Let's just right. uh, we 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 seed our time. Here's a letter from Landon. Hi, uh, Landon. And Landon wants to take us to task. And other people have already taken us to task for this. What did we do? Uh, on our Stephen King episode. Oh, dear. Uh, hi, Business and Whitney. Big fan of Critically Acclaimed. I especially enjoyed your Stephen King episode. However, huh. you skipped Sleepwalkers. <gasps> we did we skip did. Sleepwalkers! We, we, we reviewed every film, but we missed Sleepwalkers, so here's my review of Sleepwalkers. Sleepwalkers sucks. <laughs> is that the end of the letter? Or is uh, there... No. Uh, we'll, says, uh, we're well, gonna, we'll do a full review of Sleepwalkers no. in a second. Okay, well, not based on a book. It was written by Stephen King, directed mm-hmm. by Mick Harris, and is, and is batshit crazy. Uh, there's also 1997's Trucks. Which was straight to video in America, but a Canadian adaptation of source material used for Maximum Overdrive. I haven't seen that one. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also a film called The Woman in the Room, a 30-minute short. Ah. Uh, The cover used to freak me out in the horror section of my video store. Uh, By the way, as any pointed out that Whitney, and to some extent Bibbs, pronounces the word exactly. You really enunciate the T. I hope I'm not not making you self-conscious. It was just an observation. Now I'll have to think about that every Mm -hmm. time I say the word exactly. Exactly. Well, that's the way it's pronounced. There's a T in it. I also tend to add the uh, N in Wednesday. Wednesday? Wednesday. Wednesday. Um, I try to say February and jewelry. Yes. I'm big on February. February, Um, So, uh, real fast, about that Stephen King episode, Uh, if anyone's new to the podcast feed or I think the Stephen King episode. Mm. Stephen King episode was back when we were on Schmoes Now. Yeah. Uh, that episode is a really fun episode. I really had a good time doing it and researching it with you. Uh, we did miss Sleepwalkers. We missed Sleepwalkers, and I can tell you why we missed Sleepwalkers. We were going off of, to keep ourselves, like, you know, on track, we were going off of a list of Stephen King movies, and the list was of adaptations, and I wasn't and thinking about it, and so Sleepwalkers wasn't on it. It was an original story for film. It yeah, makes it perfect a- sense. It is annoying, and I apologize for that. Uh, regarding other stuff, like Woman in the Room or Trucks, we were going off of theatrical releases. Once you get started on uh, short films and straight to video series, series and, and, stuff, yeah, and yeah. like sequels to Children of the Corn, then we'll be there all day. And as much as I would like to be there all day, at some point my computer will run out of battery. So, uh, but let's talk about Sleepwalkers because we make extension cords. You can just plug it in. You're an extension cord. Uh, let's talk about Sleepwalkers a little bit more than what you said. Because Sleepwalkers is a weird film. Sleepwalkers was a film that Stephen King wrote directly for the screen. wasn't based off of a short story or a novel. Uh, and it's it is completely bonkers. It is the story of two cat vampires. Cat 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 shape shifting cat people who yeah. move, move from town to town, uh, and they. Yeah, they like sucks. They don't drink blood. They drink like the soul of virgins. Yeah. Like Stephen King's really big on sort of like this vampire notion. Like mm-hmm. he did re- write vampire stories because he wrote Salem's Lot, and those are like direct bloodsuckers. Uh, yeah, he's, but he, he, I feel like that's, look he felt at, like he did his vampire novel at that point. And, yeah. So yeah. so, but you know, this whole idea, like the vampire like thing, where you suck out someone's life. That's something from Cat's Eye. Mm-hmm. That's something from Sleepwalkers. It's something from Doctor Sleep. Yep. Uh, so he, he he likes the vampire idea, even if it's not blood. And so clearly, he's a cat owner because he understands that cats do suck your soul out while you sleep. I think he's well. A he's a dog owner, so maybe oh, well. he, maybe he just has a thing against cats. Although Cat's Eye, the cat was the hero. Uh, 
so sleepwalkers, yeah, they're they're cat people. Uh, they're played by uh, Brian Krause and Alice Kriege. Alice mm-hmm. Kriege, by the way, is a really underrated actor. Most people probably know her best as like the Queen Borg in uh, Star, Star Trek: First Contact. Contact yeah. um, she's great, and uh, they are immortal monsters who've been, tra- been traveling from town to town. He's like looks like a young man, even though he's ancient, and he's been like seducing young girls. Uh, this town, uh, she's played by uh, Machen Amick from Twin Peaks, who is great, and she has this really awesome bit where she's working at a movie theater and she does like a whole dance routine when nobody's looking, and she's just really oh, charming. Gosh, I forgot about she's that. She's just dance totally routine. charming. Um, and uh, yeah, she falls in with this guy, and it turns out he's a horrible monster, and there's terrible CGI effects as they turn into cat people. Also, even though they're cat people, they are terrified of cats, and like mm, cats no. are attracted to them and try to hunt them down. As I've said before, you own two cats. Oh yeah, no. I get to have cats as roommates. Oh, okay. You don't, right. I'm lucky you don't enough. Own the cats. I'm lucky enough to have cats with me. You live with two cats. Yes, I'll that's say accurate. that. Uh, you see how they react to one another. Yep. That they're they're mortal enemies, cats. <laughs> they they're are. like betta fighting fish. You put two together, and eventually they'll just tussle. Yeah. So it makes sense that a cat's weakness is other cats. You're not wrong. Mm. You're not wrong. Um, and uh, yeah, honestly, it's it's a weird, cheesy concept. And I feel like there's probably someone who could have done cat monsters better. I mean, it's been done better. Cat mm. people, for God's sake. Uh, but uh, yeah, I I think Mick Garris is too kooky a director for a lot of the Stephen King material he's done. Hmm. Like, he clearly loves Stephen King material, and he clearly has a great working relationship with Stephen King. Multiple times. Yeah, they work together a lot. uh, Stephen King trusted Mick Garris to do uh, his more faithful adaptation of The Shining as a TV miniseries. Another thing we didn't do because it's a TV miniseries. Um, He loves the material, but I think, I feel like Mick Garris might have peaked at Critters 2. Maybe so. I think Critters 2, like, because that's a funny movie. Yeah, it's a it's, fun, it's a, weird... It's a horror comedy. Yeah. It's got weird shape-shifting uh, space aliens. It has a lot of strange jokes. Uh, one of my favorite gags is the shape-shifting aliens can turn into whatever they... Like, a person they see, even mm-hmm. if it's just a picture. Yeah. One of them turns into, like, a Playboy centerfold, and... Mm. When when the alien turns into a Playboy centerfold, it looks down at its midsection and pulls out the staple that was in the picture. That is a great joke. It's a great joke. It's a great little visual gag. It's something only somebody like Mick Garris would have thought of. I, if memory serves, it would later be used in the film Test Tube Teams from the year 2000. Which is a David Dakota joint. It is a David Dakota okay. joint, yeah. Also known as Virgin Hunters, but... Test two teams, Test two teams from the year two thousand is much better. better. But like, yeah, creep show. I'm oh, sorry, uh, Critters two is just full of weird, fun ideas, and so is Sleepwalkers. But the material is very clearly designed to actually be creepy. Mm. So Mick Garris is having a really good time with this, but the material is like a bit more conventional vampires hunting young women, hiding out in town. It's, it's like, a bit spookier. I feel like yeah, I feel like it wants to be spookier yeah, than Mick was, Garris is letting it be. The, I feel like someone like Wes Craven. Could, well, I mean Wes Craven. Craven is a pretty good director all around, yeah. but I think he could have done something really good with a cat monster thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Little Insider Baseball, I once interned for Roger Corman. Yeah. Uh, I got to read a bunch of really awful scripts uh, uh, to see if they wanted to buy them. Not make them, just buy them and then pass them on. You know, are, are these good enough to sell to studios? And one of them was a cat monster script. Huh. about a, It's just sort of like a typical werewolf, but he turns into like a giant jaguar monster instead. That's cool. and it, it was kind of cool. I pretty, pretty conventional script, but uh, it was going to be sold to Wes Craven. Oh. It's like, well, this is not a very good script, but you give it to Wes Craven, it's okay. That was my note. And yeah. Who's, who's to say if... if 
the Craven production company ended up buying that one. Yeah, I uh, uh, I would give it to Neil Jordan if I could. I think he'd understand <laughs> you know, spooky. I think that he'd go for spooky, which I think is what you need. Really moody, yeah. Neil Jordan. Right, let's read another letter. All right, let's read another letter. Here so yeah, Sleepwalkers, fun but not good. Not good. Yeah. It, it, Kind of, kind of sucks actually. <laughs> yeah, but not, but it's not boring. It's not a boring film. You will when you have a good time watching it. You will not I'll, be scared. It's about as good as Children of the Corn two. That's fair. Yeah, Children of the Corn two has some good scares when like when they drop a house on that lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or yeah, some early CGI stuff that's kind of fun. Yeah. Anyway, uh, here's a letter from Brooklyn. Hi. A person named Brooklyn, not the city. Uh, Hi, Diddly Ho, Bibbs and Whitney. Hello. Uh, I think it's more than fair to say that movies can rank higher or lower depending on when we see them during our life. Mm -hmm. This is true. Uh, The world around us and the obstacles we overcome give us the most unique view. This can sometimes lead to a movie you will only ever watch once. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, that film is Inside Out. Interesting. Really? All right. I've seen it twice already. Uh, I watched this at a time when I was struggling to admit I have depression and anxiety attacks, as well as seeing counseling to help with coping. Inside Out shows its hand pretty early on, happening the second Joy puts sadness in the circle. Yeah. Uh, At that point, they're saying our message is going to be, it's okay to be sad. Uh, It... Then it just winds up the sadness, and the waterworks happened, not during the death of Bing Bong like most, but instead when Riley, Riley finally accepts sadness in her life. That, oh gosh, the moment in Inside Out, <laughs> where she, like, she's run away and she comes back and hugs her parents and she does this little kind of, this kind of sobbing noise. She's it's not even, like, really crying. Real. She just sort of takes an intake, and that's when bittersweet is born in her brain. That part made me ball and ball and ball. That's, it was, yeah. It's really good stuff. I was not mm. as high in Inside Out because I got kind of wrapped up in the weird details, but oh, over right. time, it's only gotten better. Yeah. Well, I, I, that, that's been a problem with me in a lot of Pixar films. It's like a lot of – they're very emotional. I understand where they're coming from, but there's always going to be one little weird detail that kind of itches at me a little yeah. bit that shouldn't, but it does. Like everybody really loves Up, but I can't get over the dogs are flying planes in that movie. <laughs> There's like weird shit in that movie that just doesn't fit anything. Yeah. Um, same with uh, Ratatouille. I really love Ratatouille and the messages about making art and being accepted as this original outsider mind. But pulling on a guy's hair to puppet him is weird to me. It's really it's weird. Like, it's like this point... weird cartoon conceit in well, this because, otherwise kind of serious well, movie. Well, because those movies, and I, and I actually love both of those movies, yeah. in, in spite of or because of those weird that weirdness. Both of those movies ask you to accept one weird thing and then ask you to accept another weird thing later. Yeah. So like Ratatouille like a, and a different weird thing, yeah, like a different exactly. mood of weird like thing. Ratatouille, a rat is <laughs> like has what what we call in Food Wars the god tongue. Mm. Like he just can taste anything and know what made it and why mm. it's perfect or what it needs. And so this rat is his perfect chef. It asks you to accept that and asks you to accept and, it right and, off the bat. You can accept that. Yeah, that's why. You you that's that's the weird magical thing you've asked him to introduce it and then halfway through also it can puppet a human being by pulling his hair. Yeah. What? Uh, like you're going to get through this in a real quick montage and we're never going to talk about it again, are we? Yeah. Good. Mm. Let's just move on. <laughs> He's hi- There's a rat hiding under your hat. Can't you just have like a private, quote, private kitchen where they just goes in and he and the rat work together or something? Yeah. Just open. Uh, anyway. Yeah, same thing with Up. The dog mm. thing comes in super, super late. Inside Out, the only thing I got, I got hung up on like the mechanics of the human mind. Mm. Like, there's no logic. Yeah. There's are these people controlling her like a video game? Could she rebel against these emotions? Like it gets kind of odd. Like why is it that all of her emotions are are have male and female gender, but mm. all the emotions of everyone else's mind that we see all have the same gender? Mm. Well, like she, I, she's she's 11. She's still figuring that stuff out. I guess so. Mm. Or 
maybe she's trans or something. I don't know. Like, like that, it could that, be a thing, I, which would I be heard, fine. I heard that said that 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 because she had male and female emotions, yeah. that she had sort of a, a, a like the trans gene essentially. Yeah, uh, I heard some critics point that out, and I thought that was. I don't, I don't think, I'm not sure if Pixar meant that, but that's something that's in there. I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad mm. thing. I just I got hung up on thinking about mm. that stuff, and I couldn't really feel the emotional content because I was just trying to figure out how it all worked. And all then right. after I just sort of came to terms with my own take on how Inside Out works, I just appreciate how beautiful it is. All right. Uh, but uh, Brooklyn goes on to say, yeah. um, crying into my wife's arms uh, on my parents' couch is a memory that is ingrained into my system uh, that I want to preserve with this film. That being said, my question is, what are some movies that you won't, will only watch once? And of those movies, uh, did the time of your life affect your perception? Mm. Uh, thank you for being most excellent. We are not worthy of such content. Oh, oh, oh pish. L- listen away. Um, there's a lot of movies I'll probably only watch <laughs> once, but not out of design, just because who has the time to rewatch literally everything you've ever seen? We, we're our schedules are so busy; it's kind of rare that we get to rewatch any films at all anymore, especially new ones. Yeah. Like a lot, of, I hear some people go like, "Yeah, I just." I just got back from seeing Parasite for the fourth time. Who has the yeah. time? That's incredible I, to me. I work at the New Beverly Cinema and Quentin Tarantino's new movie, which I've projected about 70 times at this point. Uh, people are coming back for like you know, 5, 6, 12. Somebody saw it 18 times now. Damn. Like, I mean, I, good for them. That's fine. I just don't have the time for that. Yeah, I, 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 especially considering we have mm-hmm. to watch as many movies as possible. It's our job. Um, but the movies that I will kind of like go out of my way not to see again, mm-hmm. the only one that comes to mind, and it's not because of a particular time in my life, just because it was so harrowing and I think it's really well done. I think it's an excellent movie. Uh, but, uh, United 93. Oh, there you go. Was that, yeah, that's so a really terse, difficult movie. Such so, riveting, but uh-huh. terrifying. And like the final shot or if memory serves as the final shot of like inside the cockpit is the scared the shit out of me and mm. it's just so intense and so incredibly well made like i would tell people to see it mm. but unless i had to rewatch that again for like an article or something i'm probably never going to revisit it just because like i could feel every pore sweating and like <laughs> my fingernails were carving into like my yeah. couch and everything like it was just um, absolutely terrifying in the best way but yeah. i don't feel like going through that again there uh, there's some just pretty horrendous and harrowing movies that are just too gory for me to get through. And I and I love me some gore. I know you do. But I'm not sitting through Antichrist ever again. <laughs> because that's not fun gore. That's yeah. really horrible. <laughs> and I understand uh, actually kind of what a rich movie it is in terms of how deep it explores the nature and the mechanics of depression. Like within the human mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that film in particular delves into depression probably better than most movies. Not just in the way you react with the rest of the world and how you cope with depression, mm. but the way depression functions. Mm. Uh, just sort of the way it looks from inside. And I've, I've I, never I think, seen it, and that's part of the reason just yeah, because yeah, yeah. I, I deal with enough depression. It's, it's, it's part of, I like a, a, I guess, a, a d- depression trilogy that, mm-hmm. that uh, Lars von Trier was working on that he made when he was very depressed. There was uh, that, Melancholia, and Nymphomaniac. Uh, yeah. Nymphomaniac is actually, relatively speaking, a much brighter, optimistic film. I really wouldn't. Un- until the end. Yeah, uh, the, the ending t- totally just nukes the entire film. It's such a disappointment. In the last few seconds! Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like the last 20 to 30 seconds of that movie. Just cut it off! And, and it's a great movie! Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, I can't ever watch Antichrist again. There are some, like you, like you said, with United 93 that I... S- 
so, there are certain kinds of like f- harrowing family dramas that I have a lot of trouble with, mm. uh, just because that kind of family drama marked my childhood. My parents divorced when I was three, and there was mm. a, just a lot of awkwardness that I think I absorbed at a young age that wasn't even necessarily there. So uh, Ron Howard's Parenthood is a movie I can't watch. Wow. The, the awkwardness is like it hits a little too close to home. Weird. I have no, trouble uh, with – Noah Baumbach's yeah. The Squid and the Whale is yeah. another one. That, it's a little, little close to home for me. Uh, so. Michael Hanukkah's Amour. Ah, there you I will go. never fucking see that thing again. It's brilliant. It's a great movie. Mm-hmm. Not because it's a bad movie. I want to make that clear. Uh, but it is a story of a very old couple and uh, the wife gets afflicted with – I'm trying to think specifically say what her ailment is. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's affecting her cognitive capacity it's- and she's just dying – Dying. It's not. Uh, it's not Lou Gehrig's. Um, no, I don't think so. But it, yeah, it's, it's something that's robbing her of all of her capacity uh, for for physical movement. Uh, it's a stroke, and then yeah. possibly leads to worse, um, according to Wikipedia here. Right. Um, but uh, it's basically about how at the end of your life you will die, and it will suck. And the people you love will die, and if you outlive them, it will suck. Mm. And a part of me is just like, why do I need this? <laughs> What am I going to do with this? Just be depressed and realize I have nothing to look forward to? I am death phobic. This is an actual thing. It's not the real word. I have a phobia of death itself. This would be thanatophobia. I think think that's actually correct. I have a phobia of death itself. The actual act of dying scares the crap out of me. Mm -hmm. And regardless of how it comes, just terrifies me. Okay. For a variety of personal reasons. Um, And a more just was nothing but that. It was just finding that part of my brain and poking it with a needle. (laughs) And I get it. It's a great movie, but I do not need that again. I got it. Thank you. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, that's most films now. What was the, I'm trying to think of the last film, like new film, I saw twice, and like for fun, not like, for, yeah, like for, for work. like for, or like I was on vacation and my family wanted to see something, so I watched something again. Um, <sighs> What's the last thing I watched? It might have been, and this is going back a bit, but Iron Man three. That's a long that, ass. Time. That was a long time ago. The last time I saw a film twice in theaters voluntarily because I saw it at a screening and I reviewed it. Yeah, and then I went on vacation with my family, and that was the one we could agree on. So I saw it again. I didn't mind because I actually really liked that sure. movie. That's one of my favorites of that series, frankly. But, like on uh, home video, I'll watch stuff a mm-hmm. couple of times sometimes if I'm really into it. But usually they're really happy movies. Oh, yeah. Like, you know a movie I'm probably going to watch a bunch of times? Like, especially... Um, no, I'm probably going to watch this a bunch of times, although I've only seen it once so far. Mm-hmm. Finally got around to Dora and the Lost City of Gold. Oh, I missed that. I wanted to see it. it that so good. movie is great! Mm-hmm. And I know people said it was great, but I can say with personal experience now, that movie is... Really awesome, really clever, really funny, very mm. bright and happy without feeling like insincere or like you're being sold something. Mm. Like, even though you are, of course, it's a franchise, but like, it's just so <coughs> confidently, sweetly, entertainingly made. <laughs> I'm totally going to watch that a few more times at uh, least just for fun. Okay. Yeah. Uh, here's a letter from Christopher. Hello, Christopher. Hi. Uh, hey there, Whitney and Bibby. B I B B I. I can handle it. You're BB Anderson. Uh, sure. All right. Uh, it, and he says, is that new? BB, uh, does anybody call you BB? I think I've heard people call me BB. All right. Uh, name's Christopher. I'm from Australia. Smiley face. Hello. Hello, Australia. Smiley face. Uh, I've been listening to Critically Acclaimed for just over a year, so I, w- uh, I wouldn't know if you've previously addressed personal rankings of the Friday the 13th films, <sighs> or even done a whole episode about them. We have. Yeah. Um, if you would, please, uh, seeing as Friday the 13th has now passed, uh, this was this back, was in a bit se- ago. back in September, um... And we have a second coming in December. What are your rankings of the films? So uh, it's still relevant. Yeah. 
My ranking goes. Oh, this is an unusual ranking. Okay, interesting. Uh, number one, part six. Okay, number, I know why. I know why. Num- I get it. Number two, Jason X. Mm-hmm. Number three, part seven. <laughs> number four, the remake. Number five, the final chapter. Mm-hmm. It's most people's number one. Uh, number six, part three. Number seven, Freddy v. Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, number eight, part eight. Number nine, part nine. Uh, <laughs> number ten, Freddy the 13th, part two. Number 11, the first one. And number 12, Freddy the 13th, five, a new beginning. Uh, wow, that low for number two. Two usually ranks really high. Two is my number one. Yeah, I, 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 I you're like not alone on that. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's mine. Number two took, uh, first of all, it was like Jason's the killer. Uh, it took that sort of campfire element mm-hmm. of this of the series that it was like a story on. that's been passed down. It yeah. feels like a little bit more like a campfire story. It's a little slicker and better made than the first one. It's a little mm-hmm. better thought out. Um, yeah, it's just sort of, I think, the ur example of what that series can reach. Um I know it got really ridiculous later on, and you know yeah. they started putting on the mask, and it got really kind of kooky by the time you get to number four. I like number four as well. That's mm-hmm. my number two. Um, I, I do like uh, the final Friday. I like Friday mm-hmm. the F- final Friday and Jason X perhaps more than I should. No, because those, those, those are those are like just really energetic, kind of wild. They're fun. Takes Jason, on the character. Everyone rips on Jason X for being kooky. Mm-hmm. You know, it's trying it's to be a, kooky. There's a scene, it's okay uh, to me. It's okay to watch Jason X. On its own level, mm. rather than saying, oh, but Friday the 13th Part 2. They're not going for Part 2. Let them have their fun and enjoy it. And if it doesn't work on that level, fine. But I think that one does. I, I like I like the remake, actually. Of, of, of the horror remakes, that one kind of works on, on its own terms. I think they were careful to... They took enough elements from the early part of the series mm-hmm. to you could kind of squint and tilt your head a little bit and fit it in between three and four. You could do like that, in, like in a proper continuity. You could kind of do that if it wasn't for the mask thing, because it's very clear about where he got that in the original. But um, let, let's just run down. Let's just run down real, real fast. We'll All go right. through the whole Friday series because right. uh, I think that's I think doing our own individual rankings that's a whole episode and it would take forever. Yeah. Uh, so real, real fast. The original Friday the Thirteenth, nineteen eighty. Summer camp slasher. This is the one that doesn't have Jason Voorhees in it. And as we all know now, it's like, you know, it was a twist at the time, but we all know it now. It was Jason's mom. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of it when I first watched it on home video. If you ever get a chance to see that movie on the big screen, it's actually really atmospheric and effective. Yeah. Like all like the quietude and the really wide shots where you just see the woods Mm. at home. You're just waiting for something to happen in a theater. You're looking at those woods, looking for the (laughs) thing that's going to jump out. And it's actually really well crafted. So I like it a lot. Mm. Uh, Friday the 13th part two. I 100% agree with you in many respects. It is the epitome of the genre and turning it into a story, not just, about a campfire tale that turns out to be real, but in which the protagonist survives because she takes the story seriously and no one else does. There you go. I love that meta narrative. Mm-hmm. Friday the 13th, part 3D. I know a lot of people like this one. I'm not. I think it's probably the worst in the franchise. Uh, the, the character, I think his name is Shelly. Shelly. Uh, Shelly, who is supposed to be a stand-in for the audience because he's a horror fan and he reads Fangoria, but and, he's also he's the most awful and... human being. Yeah, he's, he's insufferable. Yeah. He's socially awkward in a way that isn't endearing. It's socially awkward in a way that you just... You you want to, like, mm-hmm. take him aside and say, Shelly, this isn't you. <laughs> Shelly, everything you're trying to do is completely undermining everything you ever want, and it, and it, it breaks my soul every time you talk. And if he's supposed to be the stand-in for the audience, then I'm you, yeah, you get this idea that the filmmakers hate the audience. Yeah, uh, and there's some good kills in uh, it, but it's not a very good movie. Um, Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter—that's the fourth one. Uh, yeah, they called it the final chapter. It's funny. That was great. 
It's a lot of fun. Uh, Crispin Glover does a crazy dance. Corey Feldman plays a young Tom Savini, basically. More or less, yeah. Who, like, also saves the day because he pays attention to the story of Jason Voorhees. Um, A lot of people think this is the perfect one because this is when Jason, like, sort of had his iconic look. mm -hmm. It is really slickly made. Um, It took, like, a bunch of films to get Jason together to be the point where he's an icon. I think this one was released right before A Nightmare on Elm Street. So this was, like, sort of where the, the slasher genre itself, like, really sort of took off. Yeah, as a new like, breed of it. Like, yeah, not, this kind of, not just Halloween knockoffs, but like a new thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see, we got Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. They thought, oh, what if we could do this without Jason Voorhees and just have a copycat? I thought that's a, it's a good idea. On I, paper, I think a lot of people works. don't like that it's not Jason. I think they just want to see their hero murdering people. It has a, a really awesome new wave dance scene with a really cool <laughs> new wave character. Yeah, there's a very unfortunate sequence with a guy trapped in an outhouse. Oh, God, yeah. It's that's, so bad. That's but pretty gross. It's, it's not the worst in the series, but it's also not particularly good. The setting is awful. It, like they, it looks like they found an abandoned house. Yeah. Like, you, you, can, you can smell the tetanus coming off of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next one was Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. This is the one where they went full supernatural. Mm. A bold move. No, it's still science. It's electricity. I, I still stand by this. Because uh, Tommy is now grown. Tommy, that's the Corey Feldman character from uh-huh. Part 4. He's now grown up. He's Which means afraid. the movie's probably set in the mid-90s now. Yeah, they, they kind of fast forward a little bit. But yeah, he wants to dig up Jason's body to make sure he's really dead because he doesn't believe he's really dead. He's a little kooky. He stabs a a really long metal rod into Jason's heart to make sure he's really dead. But then a a bolt of lightning strikes the rod and brings Jason back to life. Now, thanks to Frankenstein, we know that's what happens with bodies. Okay, fine. But the point is that this film starts acknowledging the franchise is a little nuts and they go for it. It kills all the characters and only like... 30 minutes, or I guess like 40 minutes of the movie have passed. Yeah. So they just sort of quite literally bus in more characters. <laughs> yeah, there's the new summer camp starting out and everything. And um, this one has a lot of fun, you know, meta humor in it. It opens with a big homage to James Bond as Jason Voorhees like throws a knife at you and everything. Um, yeah, it's, I have a lot of fun with this one. I <laughs> It's not my number one, but it's actually pretty close mm. just because it's so unapologetically weird and fun. I think it's pretty awful. I know. I, I, I rewatched it. I liked it better the second time. But yeah, yeah uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Seven: The New Blood. Jason versus Firestarter. Great pitch. Good. Good. I, so, some good supporting performances. I feel like it's like the fifth one. The setting it works against it. Yeah. Uh, it's supposed to be sort of a, a campfire story anyway, and he stalks cabins and stuff. But it, it's like this one only takes place pretty much around in and around one house and that's mm-hmm. not as interesting for Jason yeah uh, there's and, some really good fighting bits towards the end as he's fighting this psychic just, girl just like, it, the, it, there it, need to be more of that the I think. climax yeah. is kick ass everything up to it is pretty standard Jason stuff it's not great mm-hmm. Friday the 13th part 8 Jason takes Manhattan I'm gonna go to bat for this one okay I like this one everyone complains everyone complains about Jason takes Manhattan they say he only spends like half an hour in Manhattan mm-hmm. If it had been called Jason Takes Titanic, because he spends two-thirds of it on a boat, Mm. you'd be happy. Because this is actually a very entertaining Jason movie. We talked about how the locations had started undermining it. Put him in new locations. Put him on a boat. Actually kind of interesting, and they get some cool set pieces out of it. Take him to New York. Bunch of weird, crazy shit happens Mm. in New York. I have a really good time with this movie. 
I, I think it's fun. It's dumb fun. Yeah. I, don't, I don't like the characters he kills on the boat. They're all just obnoxious teens. Well, they're all there to usual. die. They're all, it's true. They're all there to die. And we're here to see Jason. Uh, Jason is shocked back to life, so it's still science. Yep. Um, <laughs> okay, you know, he's, he's, he's spent a couple years at the bottom of a lake, but uh-huh. it's electricity that brings him back. Okay. Uh, it's not until Jason 9, Jason Goes to Hell, that it actually is definitively demonic. Fair enough. Before we make that segue, real, you're just, do, do you like Part 8 fine? Or? It's all right. It's okay. Yeah, it's, wa- it's watchable. All right. Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. This is where the entire franchise goes off the rails. As much as I appreciate mm. ingenuity, I think this is probably the probably the worst in the series, if not number three. Uh, well, the bottom know, two for me. I, I kind of admire, though, that it just sort of swings for the walls. The, the go- it just doesn't kind of work on its go- own merits, The gore though. and the effects are just really over the top. I like the way Jason looks. And the idea now is that Jason is a demon uh-huh. that can like crawl into other people's bodies and possess people if they eat his organs. So fucking weird. Uh, or, or like it turns into a little creature at some point and climbs inside a dead body and the dead body comes back to life. I know. Like, that's all that's weird. I just don't think it works as a film. There are there's one thing about this movie that I will give it ma- oh, two things actually I'll give it mad credit for okay one the best opening of any Jason movie oh where they just shoot him to death okay so it opens <laughs> with a young woman and she's like taking a shower mm. and she's like in a cabin and she's all nude and sexy for no reason and you're just like wow mm. we've just completely jumped the shark on these Jason movies and then Jason attacks her and then she runs out into the woods into a trap there's, <laughs> there's a whole Jason, SWAT team Jason's surrounded by a SWAT team and they blow him to pieces <laughs> it's Awesome! It is such a great goddamn opening because you do not see it coming. It is crazy. And then, then, yeah, they take his pieces to the pathology lab, and the pathologist. Like gets hip- his blood is all black. He just can't help blood. himself. And like, yeah, like he gets hypnotized by handling the organs and picks up Jason's heart. Just looks so is, delicious. It's, it's like the size of a canned ham too. It's enormous, <laughs> and he just starts eating it. And then he's Jason now. And then there's also this whole idea of like. A Jason bounty hunter who's been on Jason's tail. This That's whole the other time. thing I like. Creighton Duke, uh, played by Blackjack Savage himself, Stephen Williams. Uh, he's a fun character because we haven't really had like a nemesis for Jason yet. Uh, we had Tommy Wallace, but Tommy was always like so like emotionally uh, afflicted by his experience with Jason. Like just having some badass who his who is not a nice person. Mm. Like he's an asshole. So, like, it's kind of fun, and you're not sure if you're on Creighton Duke's side, if he's just going to get everyone killed, or he's going to be like Quint in Jaws, or he's just, like, too obsessed. When, when was part nine? It was 95, I think? Oh, it was, I don't think it was 95. 90, 90, 93. 93, okay. 93. And, the only and, one that came out in the 90s. And and Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, was about the same time. Uh, like a year or two later? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because they had that ending so, that teased the crossover. Yeah, uh, at the end of uh, Freddy the 13th, part nine... Uh, yeah, we get to see like, there's just like Jason's been defeated. Uh, his he's definitely mask dead. Is on the he's, he's definitely in hell, and his mask is left behind. And then, in a cute little fan service teaser, we see Freddy Krueger's glove reach up out of the ground, grab the mask, and drag it to hell. It so would have been really cool to see that in an audience for the first time. Yeah, the, the, I'll bet that would have been because I was too young to see this mm-hmm. in a theater. Like I would have loved to have seen that for the first time in an audience, mm-hmm. people losing their minds over how cool that seemed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, they worked on Freddy vs. Jason for like a decade before they finally got it out. And in the meantime, they didn't make any Jason movies. So they made one Jason movie and they set it in the future specifically to get out of the way of whatever Freddy vs. Jason did. Right. So they Which made Jason. going to be set in the present. So they made Jason X. It's They know it's stupid. Jason gets frozen along with one of his latest victims. He is revived in the future by like a, t- a college team of horny archaeologists. On a, on a spaceship. On a spaceship. And they take him out into space and he stalks him on this, them and their sexy robot 
on a spaceship. There's a horny robot that tries on nipples in that movie. It's such a weird scene. Like, she doesn't have nipples, so she tries them on, saying, hey, you like my nipples? Like, and the, this, the, this scientists, is the weirdest way of getting nudity. The scientist, and, and then the nipple falls off yeah. with a clinking noise. It's so fun. <laughs> and um, the movie knows it's silly. There's some really funny bits in it. The bit where they turn on the holodeck so that it looks oh, to, like to Crystal dis- Lake. Like the, Crystal Lake in 1980. Yeah. To distract him. And there's like two young, sexy women. And they're just like, hey, Jason, mm-hmm. you want to have some beers or smoke some pot or have premarital sex? Mm, then, then we they, love premarital mm-hmm. sex. Then they remove their shirts and get into sleeping bags. And it's then, pretty hilarious. And then it cuts away for a scene. And the next we see Jason, he's trying to kill these unkillable like, well, teenagers. He's, he's, <laughs> so he's, funny. he's beating one of them to death with the other one, which is just <laughs> completely bizarre. It's also This is also the one where uh, he has... Uh, the biggest kill count of any slasher, and I will not, no one fight me on this. Well, because it, Jason is responsible for the destruction of a bl- fully populated space yeah, station. He blows up a space station. That's so, yeah, at that's least hundreds, thousands hundreds of, people. of people. Yeah. Um, and then we got Freddy vs. Jason. Mm-hmm. I will say this right now Freddy vs. Jason is the best fan service film. It, it's totally rock solid. Yeah. And- Maybe Endgame, maybe Endgame, but I think Freddy vs. Jason is it for me. Endgame, I think, like, there's something a little too elaborate about Endgame, because they used all of these films to set it up, and it's the second part of this bigger story. I I kind of like those fan service films that feel deliberately contrived, like the screenwriter is really in a rush to, to find a way to get all of this to work. How do we get them to go? How do we Freddy get versus, them to send? Freddy vs. Jason doesn't even make that much sense. Freddy's a dream demon. Jason's like a, a zombie. zombie yeah. who stalks teenagers so, at, a, at the, a lake. Why do you get them together? In, in Freddy v. Jason, Jason is like... S- growing fungus next to a tree somewhere. He's just sort of sitting there dying. <laughs> yeah, he's nothing. And he's he's, he's just nothing. He's dead. And and Freddy, <laughs> taking a, con- a conceit from Wes Craven's new nightmare, uh, it has been forgotten, and if you forget a story, the demon kind of vanishes. Yeah. Nobody can dream about Freddy, so he has no life. So in yeah, order nobody to, knows to dream about Freddy because so, they don't have him in their brain. Yeah. So this is a writer's room that had twelve hours to come up with this. <laughs> they what had if a decade? And this yeah, is what yeah I know. Did. This is what like it feels really rushed, and I I kind of like that. Yeah. But um, just there's something really relatable about that. Having written papers at the last minute yeah. you know, at that time, it's like yeah, I understand what they're going for. But in order to bring his reputation back. Freddy gets into Jason's dream, revives Jason through his dream magic, uh. and has Jason go on a killing spree in Freddy's hometown on Elm Street. Yeah. So people think Freddy's alive again and Freddy can come back to life, even though it's Jason doing the killing. But, okay. Fred, but, but, Jason won't stop killing. But then and now Freddy's he's back. stealing Freddy's kills, and that's why Freddy wants to kill Jason. There's a bit where, like, Freddy's about to kill somebody in a dream, and they just sort of vanish out of the dream. It's like, wait a second. Oh, shit, they died. <laughs> you idiot and so of course they have to fight and there's the the fight is amazing because half the fights in a dream sequence and of course freddy kicks his ass and it's hilarious but then freddy's brought into the real world and half the fights in the real world and now jason Jason has the advantage everything you want to see you see and there's big shout outs to other stuff in the series it's it's even better than that dumb alien v predator ronnie you knew how to film this to make it fun and like kind of scary in that slasher way but he knows he's not going to make you lose sleep over it the the, the actors are all like funny and charming they bring a lot of energy to the film freddy vs jason kicks ass and then as you said the remake uh which is 10 years old now it's been 10 years since we had a Friday the 13th movie. God damn it. Well, the, 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 the rights have been all chewed up, and the idea was they wanted to eventually get to 13. 
Yeah, we're still at 12! There are 12 Jace Franken... Ah! And here's the frustrating thing. Because they announced two sequels to that new Halloween, it means Michael Myers will get to 13 before Jason ever That's did. That's depressing. No. That's really depressing. Yeah. Anyway. But uh, the, the remake, very cleverly, I'm going to say this right now, I really like this remake. It took, like, as we mentioned, it took, like, four films to get to the Jason Voorhees that is the iconic Jason Voorhees. The remake takes all four of those films and condenses the origin of Jason into one as though it was planned from the beginning. Mm. And it's actually pretty clean and effective. It's clean and effective. Yeah. The kills are, are pretty fun. The body count's pretty low. Yeah, but, uh, there's, but some, there's still a lot. And there's, there's some bits that are... very gory when yeah, we see them. And the, the, there are some bits that are actually kind of spooky. And they're really good about including all that, like... Perfunctory nudity, which yeah. was kind of a rarity in the mid two thousands. Yeah, there took a lot of nudity out of slash. A lot of things were going to PG thirteen, and a lot of the hard R ones, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, they were not trying for mm. sexiness, which would have I think been out of place in those films anyway. But well, yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> the the sex scene is actually this really funny dialogue about quote nipple placement. Yeah, that's just, right. He's like, your, your your body is so great. Your nipple placement is so not really. It's a weird thing to comment on. On yeah, at least. What? Especially uh, in the midst of coitus. What a strange man. And also, I forgot to mention, hmm. the guy in that scene uh, is a <laughs> character right. is a character from Transformers. Mm-hmm. Michael Bay's Transformers has the same, same character. Same not, character and not, the same actor, yeah, too. Not just yeah. the same actor. He's playing the same guy. Mm-hmm. Which means, trans, not only are Freddy and Jason in the same universe, so are the Transformers. So if you ever wanted to see Jason versus Optimus Prime, it it's could have possible. been done. It could have been done if everything had stayed with uh, Platinum Dunes. Mm. So if you're watching all the Friday Thirteenth movies, you don't. You also have to watch all the Nightmare movies and weirdly all the Transformers movies. Mm. I don't get it either. Anyway. That's our thing. We spent way too long on that, although it was a great time, and I love those movies. Let's move on. Here's a letter from Jinxie, and this is uh, based on something that happened just a couple days ago. So this is a new letter. Uh, Dear Critically Acclaimed, Alan Moore Ah. uh, has been in the news again for his feelings on superheroes and superhero films. We're asking everybody. Although the interview came up, even though the interview is like two years old. But yeah, it's adding to this whole thing that Scorsese kicked off. Mm -hmm. Uh, While his feelings are well known to anybody who has followed him, I was struck by one quote in particular. He says... Uh, I would also remark that, say, for a smattering of non-white characters and non-white creators, uh, these books and these iconic characters are still very much white supremacist dreams of the master race. In fact, I think a good argument can be made for D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation as the first American superhero movie Mm. and the point of origin for all those capes and masks. It's been a controversial take, but I think he has a point. Superhero movies have been largely white male characters, and ex- and attempts to make them more diverse have had mixed results. Well, that's arguable. I think but, that's yeah. highly arguable. Um, do you think Birth of a Nation is a superhero movie, or at least had an impact on superhero lore of the caped crusader type? Thanks, Jinxie. Okay, that's a big, big topic. Mm-hmm. First off, if anyone is unfamiliar with Birth of a Nation, we are not talking about the most recent film mm-hmm. written and directed by and starring by uh, Nate Parker. Mm. We're talking about the film that he he took the title from, which is a film by D.W. Griffith. It is considered the first feature-length movie, although I've heard that disputed. It, it's not. It's not. It's, it was the first popular big one. It was ni- 1915 that movie came out. Uh, and it is a feature-length silent film about the heroism of... 
the Klan. The yeah. Ku Klux Klan. And well, it is first, astoundingly racist. The, the first half is... It, first of all, there, there was this narrative going on in a lot of dramatic fiction at the time of the nobility of the lost cause of the South. Mm. And how, what a tragic fall it was for this kind of glory time. That's what Gone with the Wind is all about. For it is. Say. It absolutely um, is. Uh, Gone with the Wind does indeed sugarcoat slavery, but at the, at the very least it doesn't have... Hor- to defend it on this ground, uh, like horrendous racist villain archetypes of of uh, people of color of people of color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, there, there are no real the, the villain of Gone with the Wind is Scarlet. <laughs> she's she's kind of the bad guy <laughs> of the piece. Yeah, you're not wrong. So uh, I remember in in film school, I think the villain is the North, but other than well, that, yeah. yeah. But there's not like a, a villain figure in yeah. Gone with the Wind. I remember in film school, uh, the teacher said, "Who here watched like a love story?" We had a like a syllabus a list film. Somebody said, "Who watched like a romantic film?" Who watched a love story? And somebody said, "I watched Gone with the Wind." And he kind of chuckled. He said, "Well, that's a love story about Scarlet and herself." <laughs> Well, Scarlett's yeah. a terrible person in Gone with the Wind. Like, she's yeah. the one, if you ever saw that Ava DuVernay uh, documentary, The 13th, mm-hmm. which you must, yeah. it's, I think it's vital cinema, mm-hmm. uh, Scarlett is the one in Gone with the Wind who says, oh, we no longer, uh, we, the, the plantation owners of the South, no longer own slaves, but what we can do is we can get prisoners mm-hmm. and treat them the same way. Yeah, and that's how she builds back up her fortune. And that's right it, there. And it's a whole fucking scene about it. Uh, and that, that scene is something like really like bold and innovative. Like she's an enter- enterprising person for having done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty gross. Um, but um, but yeah, Birth the, of a Nation was vaunted. It was very successful. Yeah. There were protests at the time. Yeah, it was it was not well regarded. And I think D. W. Griffith was of that generation where that that was just the narrative. Yeah. Where you know the, the South was a lost cause, the white people gaining it back was seen as a heroic thing, and black people were just sort of villains. Yeah, there's also the, there's also uh, the, the idea that the Ku Klux Klan had been diminishing in popularity and power. It had, it, had, then, it, it was around yeah. um, as, as a racist organization, mm-hmm. but it was kind of on the outs. And the release of Birth of a Nation brought it back and gave them this kind of heroic iconography of these, yeah. the masks and the white sheets. Riding, um, they're the cavalry charge to mm-hmm. save the day at the end. To, to save the white women who are being beset by the wicked black man. Now, the idea uh, of costumed crime fighters does predate the 20th century. I mean, at yeah, least we have the like, Scarlet Pimpernel, yeah, Scarlet, you know? it, it goes back to at least the Scarlet Pimpernel. We had legends like Zorro and the... Yeah. Zorro was a contemporary. I, Zorro was sure. in the teens. Zero oh, was, okay. a, was a, when was uh, the Lone Ranger? I guess was after this. But, yeah, yeah. Um, they're all they're all a little bit. The, the, but they're, they're, all, they're all based on a very uh, old kind of adventure novel. Yeah. archetype. Yeah, uh, like Tarzan is also very much a superhero. For yeah, example, yeah, yeah. or John Carter of Mars was very much a superhero. Um, you could argue, you know, well, but I, I could I could go on forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, cinematically, Birth of a Nation helped. Uh, basically, codify the way we treat heroism in visual fiction. In a lot of ways. Right. And the way that D.W. Griffith filmed the Klan and the way that he filmed people in those outfits is something that had an influence on the way people filmed heroic yeah, action ad- characters. Adventure cinema was was uh, really influenced by that yeah. movie. And, and I think I think when Alan Moore... <coughs> I will say this. Alan Moore is smart enough that I don't think he's accusing anyone of consciously aping Birth mm-hmm. of a Nation. What I think he's talking about is how... It's, insidious birth of a nation was yeah, and how it treated the idea of white supremacy. We looked up to these people not because they were saving the day, but because they were white people saving the day. Mm-hmm. That 
filtered in through the visual language, and then we ended up with like, hey, we're going to have this Captain America guy. He's going to fight all the Nazis. What does he look like? The Nazi ideal of a man. Yeah, he, uh, That's the, ironic. It's kind of like turn, turning the Aryan, Aryan ideal back on itself. Yeah. Um, uh, to uh, to point this out, a lot of those characters, characters like Superman and, and Captain America, were created by Jewish creators. Yes, yeah, very true. But the way they were received and the way you can interpret those characters is as, yeah, heroic white men. Mm-hmm. Heroic straight white men because they were made by straight white men. Yeah, and because, uh, they, because those straight white men were dominating the, the comic book world for decades yeah, this, decades to get this non-white yeah, comic book heroes this, out this kind of white male archetype ideal that comes straight from birth of a nation mm-hmm. was yeah it kind of turning into this kiddie version of it in the heads of its young readers and, and you can, a lot of that influence because there's been this refusal to drastically alter those characters and for the mm-hmm. sake of tradition we're keeping all of that alive inside of it yeah like like i've seen like these wonderful old comics and they have like a thing about like superman telling kids that like hey we we all need to not be racist and mm-hmm. not be afraid of people from other countries and treat everyone like equal mm-hmm. i'm like great are there any non-white superheroes you can show in the justice league to prove that you believe that when did not for many years? Yeah, like uh, Cyborg is a non-white character, but he didn't come along until much, no. Wait, like black much Lightning recently, right? was like a character from. Oh, okay. oh, and of oh, course, course many of them were early codified as um, black versions of superheroes, which is right, problematic. Right. And, um, and same thing with Marvel, with you know Black Panther and mm. Falcon. Well, Falcon wasn't codified but, that way, but like it took too long for those characters to be created, mm. and. Yeah, so I do think that there is ingrained in visual storytelling a legacy of extremely ugly thought mm. and philosophy, whether yeah, it's yeah. sexism or racism or all kinds of horribleisms. Uh, and we cannot deny that, and we cannot really move on until we admit it. And I know yeah. it's ugly, and we don't want to think about it, and we know that there are tons of creators who never consciously put this in their work, mm-hmm. and were merely influenced by people who were influenced by people who were influenced by people who were influenced by this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I get I, that, but I we feel... need to look at it, and if we're, we're not going to change until we realize what we're doing, the insidious impact it's had, and make conscious efforts to yeah, do things I, differently. Th- there's this idea that a lot of the politic is erased uh, from a film, depending on how like entertaining it is. Mm. Uh, that's a fallacy, of course. Yeah, I shut off my uh, brain. Great, so you're just letting everything in, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's been a, an aversion to really deep dives into sort of the cultural impact of a lot of this stuff that's mm-hmm. really entertaining. Yeah, the more mainstream um, and, and fun it, it is, the less eager we are to really it, delve. It wasn't until I started seeing some films from the 30s like Lives of a Bengal Lancer that I realized a lot of alien invasion flicks, even when the aliens are just monsters, aren't so much monster movies as they are colonialism movies. Absolutely. And, and I, I started seeing the uh, James Cameron's movies Aliens in a new way, mm-hmm. where... I, I I've saw, I now I've seen movies just like Aliens, but instead of the colonial marines, the colonialists, mm-hmm. he, fighting, he did that on purpose. Fighting uh, fighting uh, creatures, mm-hmm. they're fighting African natives. They're murdering black people, and uh-huh. that was seen in the. Well, you were talking about like Lies of a Bank Lies of a Bank Lancer, yeah, or Traitor Horn, or yeah, the, you know, there's really this, this kind of yeah frontier films. Yeah, this kind of ideal of uh, of white colonialists going to Africa and taking the place. 
uh, was seen as something very heroic and yeah. killing and hunting the creatures. We are power, more powerful than those creatures. Exactly. That's one of the reasons uh, yeah. why I love aliens. Aliens is very smart. Uh, uh, alien, and you know, he, James Cameron calls them colonial marines, and it's essentially the same type of story. He just changed all of the iconography, he said in the future, mm-hmm. and he turns all of the African natives into literal creatures now. Yeah, and then and, we get to see like but, how how like how like actually weak mm. and cowardly all of these so-called mm. heroic heroes who are just all they're doing is talking a big game. Yeah, I, and, I wish, I wish yeah. people took from that movie that it is actually about weakness and cowardice yeah. rather than heroism and badassery, which is what yeah. I think a lot of people who, take from who, that who, movie. Who's the person who makes it out of that movie unscathed? The <laughs> maternal person who really? actually gives a shit about people. Uh-huh. That's the person. Everyone else, even and, if they survive, the, yeah. they're fucked up. Also a young girl and uh, not a human. <laughs> no, even <laughs> yeah. he's fucked up. Even he gets like torn in half. That's true. Yeah, like yeah, Kyle Reese. Oh, and, and not Kyle and Reese. Uh, Michael Hicks. Bean. Michael Hicks Bean. doesn't end up too great either. But yeah, Michael Bean lives at the end because I remember he, he, he is, but he's he's seriously wounded, and he dies at the. I remember he dies yeah. at the beginning of Alien Three. Yeah, yeah. And, As and, does Newt. It's too much yeah. to everyone's chagrin, and then everyone's just like, "Oh my god, I can't believe the beginning of Terminator Dark Fate," and I'm just like. You did it before. I don't know. James Cameron was fine with it, apparently. Like, I mean, we complained at the time, but he wasn't above doing it. Um, anyway, uh, my, my point story. is, a lot of those kind, those old fashioned racist stories that uh, are meant were originally meant to promote a white supremacist philosophy, mm-hmm. or, or at least, still, or at least, exploit it ex- for ex- for financial gain to like yeah, appeal what, to people who like that stuff. Yeah, uh, those those stories are still with us, and they're still being interpreted. Uh, in sort of new kind of fantastical ways that have removed the race part from the equation, mm-hmm. but it's the same story and it's still trying to appeal to that part of us. Yeah. So, yeah, when when we see these sort of morally absolute stories of heroes and villains that are actually very clear cut as to who's right and who's wrong, mm-hmm. it is appealing to something very dark within us. And yeah. I feel like this is, this Alan is... Moore and more recently some other filmmakers have like finally been coming out and saying, no, these are... You know, when you're 12, it's fine because the world's not so complicated when you're 12 mm-hmm. and these are going to appeal to... And it's okay to have them yeah. as a genre but when they dominate the entire artistic conversation. Yeah. We, we need to have we, a larger We need to have a bigger conversation yeah. because billions of people are seeing these movies and getting that message. Like, Alan Moore was very conscious about this. When he did The Watchmen, he, he was exposing the idea that at the heart of superheroes is a fascist mentality of this yeah. simplified yeah. idea of right versus wrong. And if we're right, we can do no wrong. And... The Watchmen was all about completely undermining all of that and showing the, that underneath every to varying degrees in different ways, every single one of these characters is extremely flawed and is extremely weak mm. in some regard. Even Dr. Is, Manhattan, yeah. who is the power of a god, he's lost all humanity, and that has made him alien and dangerous. I, I, I like that uh, Alan, Moore, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbon, to, to give full credit to the Watchmen yes, creators, they were, of course, making a comment on the moral absolutism of the 1980s in America and also in England. Yes, uh, Thatcherism. Was, uh, Thatcher and Reagan were very much, you know, we are no- noble warriors in the world trying to enforce our laws on, on everything. Yeah. And uh, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbon were saying, well, that is very dangerous. Why don't we, what if we applied that morality to the superhero world, which is a morally absolute universe? And show not just that they're flawed, but they're really hor- horrendous murderers with no humanity. Mm-hmm. And who watches them? I mean, know? not specifically all of them, but a lot of them. A yeah. lot of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, and the ones all... that and the ones that aren't are still complicated, strange people who have their own predilections and their own. Yeah, it's a great. It's a great work. It's a great book. Um, I feel like when Zack Snyder brought it to film, like he said it in the '80s, just for aesthetic purposes. Uh-huh. He didn't really explore any of that. It was it's a little too direct. That's the thing. It's it's the yeah. plot, and he gets enough of it right. Like there's stuff in there that's 
pretty spot on. I actually love the whole bit with Dr. Manhattan on Mars. I never mm. thought that would translate. He did a great job on that, and I'll give Zack Snyder credit for that. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's a perfunctory adaptation, and he puts in all the, the bigness and all the bravado, and he is not a nuanced filmmaker. No, At I mean, his I, best, even when he's good, mm. nuance is not his thing. Well, And here's the thing. I've seen his other movies, and he, in all of his other movies seems to celebrate fascism. You see 300. Well, and that's we, about we, celebrating we, a fascist I, ideal. Again, a fascist see, uh, ideals in terms of storytelling in terms, at yeah, least. Exactly. Maybe not, we're not calling Zack Snyder a fascist. We're saying but that his he, stories have fascist tendencies and 300 is very specifically yeah. a fascist propaganda and, story. Yeah, that's the, the end of the, of the thing is that this whole story has been to drum up war support. Uh-huh. Pretty much. Just, just to, just to just be loyal, xenophobic against these alien be, invaders be so that we will all be, want to kill them. That's be, the whole yeah, point of the movie. Be loyal to the state, uh, or just be loyal to the military, actually, because mm-hmm. the state itself, like the people who run the place, mm-hmm. are also kind of flawed thinkers and mutants mm-hmm. that live on a mountaintop. Yeah, the politicians are, are not yeah, to be trusted. Religion is not to be trusted. Generals Macho, are to be trusted. burly, yeah. violent men are to be trusted in 300. Yeah. And, and, and that's an like, accurate adaptation of Frank Miller's story. I'm not going to deny that, and, but that's a gross story to begin with. I think Frank Miller... I've read the book and I sensed like a, a, a note of satire from Frank Miller, which is absent from from mm. Zack Snyder's. It's movie. been a while since I read it, you and I feel it. like Zack Snyder was so high on sort of the power and sort of the fascist underpinnings that he kind of under undid a lot of the themes of Watchmen. That, that's I agree. Wrong with that no, I, I, I agree. Mm. But then again, his his mm. Owl movie was pretty cool. I missed the Owl movie. The Owl movie, I think, is his best film. Okay. I honestly, The Legend of the Guardians, The Owls of Cahool, Mm -hmm. that's like, that film and Dawn of the Dead are the only two Zack Snyder films I can just unapologetically get behind. Dawn of the Dead is cool. Mm -hmm. I'm not the biggest fan of the original. I know that's sacrilege. I think Zack Snyder... I'm I'm not either, actually. I think Zack Snyder made a very good zombies Mm -hmm. in a mall movie. Day of the Dead is 20 times better. I 100% agree. <laughs> but I think Zack Snyder made a very good Dawn of the Dead remake. I think his Owl movie is awesome. There are bits and bobs of other stuff of his that I like. Like bits of The Watchmen I think are good. Mm-hmm. But he's so in your face that I'm not buying it. And he's kind of the epitome of that sort of fascist ideal of superheroism. That mm-hmm. ultra... Like he'll, ultra, he'll make it seem the, like power it's... Power is, is the end of, uh, end of morality. Right. But it's weird because like power is the end of morality. But that doesn't make the characters any smaller. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem, one of, one of the bigger problems I have with Batman v Superman. You're introducing all this moral complexity to Batman and Superman, but you're still treating them like larger-than-life comic book characters instead of humans. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they don't come across as, ooh, how deft and nuanced. It comes across as, this is larger than life and completely implausible, but we added some grit just for funsies. And it doesn't work. It's kind of refreshing that when they finally got around to sort of the the big mess that was Justice League, Mm. uh, that they kind of added this playfulness and mm-hmm. i'm guessing this was joss whedon's input i'm guessing this was the but studio there, wanting yeah, joss whedon's there's a, input, a little yeah. bit of like a little bit of playfulness and and over simplicity to the plot and the villain Man. that make it a little bit more childish and hence a hell of a lot more palatable yeah uh, i agree it's, it's like it's like going from eating raw clams out of a can to having some lollipops and i really enjoyed that yeah it's a messy and, movie it's a frankenstein monster yeah, but and i it, maintain it, this it looks and feels like it the, the effects suck but i enjoyed watching it i maintain this about uh frankenstein monster movies hmm. frankenstein monster was worthy of love that's not the point of the, <laughs> point of the, frankenstein, the book is not that the frankenstein monster is a horrible monster and needs to be destroyed the point of the book is Frankenstein monster more, d- deserved love more and nurturing. More humanity than you think. So. Yeah. So that's how I feel about those Frankenstein so movies. I, Everyone's like, oh, it feels like bits and bobs. I'm like, okay, yeah. 
Look at all those pieces, though. There's interesting stuff in there. Mm -hmm. And some of it is Snyder's, and some of it's Wheaton's. And part of me would like to see him just co-direct something just for fun. Because they're such weirdly opposite directors. They're totally opposite directors in most ways. It's so strange. Anyway, let's move on. So so keep the Snyder cut under wraps. I don't need to see it. Unless we have a fun... Also, also it doesn't exist. There was a rough cut of the movie that wasn't even the whole film. Uh, Zack Snyder's idea for the movie was to make this gigantic two-part epic of two three-hour films. That was put the, they put the kibosh on that before they even started production. Uh, no, it they was in the middle like, of production. It was, a, it was okay. like in the middle of production. So who knows how much of it got shot? Here's mm-hmm. my. I'm going to say this about the Snyder cut right now. All right. I'm not against releasing the Snyder Cut. I don't think it's a wise business move to release the Snyder Cut because well, you're making finish it. You're going to spend at least like forty, fifty million dollars to possibly reshoot stuff. But let's ignore that for a second. A lot of those characters only exist in CGI, so that's a mm. ton of CGI work. That's a ton of rescoring and re-editing and new sound design. That is all money that is going to be spent on a film people didn't want to see and most people decided not to go see it not because of the behind the scenes marigmarole they just decided not to go see it man of steel made less money internationally than amazing spider-man 2 Mm. batman v superman made a little bit more than that but dramatically underperformed even though it had like the best superhero Mm. title ever batman v superman Mm. i want to see that People were not interested in what Zack Snyder was selling on a billion-dollar level. He had some passionate fans. Some people dug it. But for the most part, people weren't interested. So after Batman v Superman tanked, what did they do? They dramatically changed the marketing scheme for Suicide Squad. And they changed Suicide Squad to be as unlike Batman v Superman as possible. Mm -hmm. And that movie made money. It made a lot of money. It's, it's a terrible film, but yeah. It, it made it money. Was, I think Wait, it, was, it, it, was, it was relief hmm. after what Zack Snyder was doing. I, Wonder I, Woman, totally antithetical. I know Zack Snyder had a lot to do with it, but hmm. it was very antithetical, and it made a lot of money. Aquaman, was, the same thing. When Justice League came out, most people just knew it was more from the guy who did Batman v Superman, and most people weren't that interested. Yeah. They didn't see it, and then decided they didn't like it. They just didn't see it. So Warner Brothers spending... Half a hundred million dollars to remake a movie that people weren't interested in is not really a sound business decision. I know it seems like a drop in the bucket, but you justify spending well, $50 million on a whim. Yeah, there, there's this idea that the the Snyder Cut, ex- like it's, it was completed, and they just put it in a vault, and they uh, like came back and had somebody else change a completed film. Like the movie wasn't it, coming out for like another seven months. There's yeah, no it, fucking movie that's done seven months it, before it's It wasn't released. done, okay? The, the, I don't think Zack Snyder had even shot everything he wanted to. There were a lot of reshoots along the way. That's you plan for giant reshoots that, in the size of the movie. That's true of every yeah. big movie. They're going to reshoot a lot of stuff. That's even not even like if everything is going to plan, yeah, they're, they, going to they're still going to reshoot stuff. They're still going to stuff. Sometimes they shoot multiple endings just in case. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's not like Justice League was this sort of complete, pure director's vision that they put in a vault somewhere, and all they have to do is release it. Which has it happened. Like, happened like yeah. Blade Runner. That was done. That yeah. was a director's cut, and then There's, they did stuff to it. They would have to actually finish like two th- like two thirds or three quarters of a movie. Mm-hmm. They have to f- put it all together. They'd have to get Zack Snyder back to direct more movie. Uh-huh. They'd have to do a lot more special effects. Have to get more looping from the actors. You yeah. gotta pay them for their time. They'd have essentially have to make the movie again if you want to get the Snyder cut. And, and there's just not that much interest. There's not that much interest. It would cost too much money yeah. and and I saw it, people it, bragging about like, oh, there were like seven hundred thousand people tweeting about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's about Ten million dollars they're going to make back if every one of them buys a ticket. Yeah, or, and most or, of them are not going the video, to yeah. because they're not going to. They're not going to go to video. Warner Brothers is getting its own streaming service. This is going to go straight to streaming. 
they're not going to add that many more people to the service just to get that film. Mm. Here's what I suggest, and this is a genuine suggestion, as someone who, if they did release the Snyder Cut, Mm. if they spent the money, if they made the film, I would love to see it, because that would be fascinating. Even if it's good, bad, I don't know if it'll be, it might suck. It would be fascinating, and I would love to see it. Mm. I just don't think it's realistic, and I think it's a weird ask. Here's what I'm going to say. Make a documentary. Mm Mm-hmm. Make a feature-length documentary, get Zack Snyder, get Joss Whedon, get everyone to talk about what happened as frankly as you can without, like, you know, destroying the studio if there's some sort of scandal. But, like, as frankly as you can, show a bunch of, like, footage that's never been seen before, show some animatics, listen to the score. If that documentary comes out and people get excited... Mm -hmm. Because now that we've seen some of it, we see that this is really, really cool. And you can get people who aren't already tweeting about it on board. Then it might be worth it. That's a good idea. That's a, And if it doesn't build up all that excitement, at least there's the documentary. And we saw all this extra cool stuff. Mm. That's could, a great idea. And you only spent, like, what, a couple million dollars on that? That's a great idea. You could call it Release the Snyder Cut. You should. <laughs> this is my idea. I called it that. Let's call it Release the Snyder Cut. I think that's a great idea for a documentary. Mm-hmm. I would watch the shit out of that documentary. Whether people loved or hated Justice League, I bet they would watch the shit out of that documentary. That's for sure. Yeah. And then if it's a hit, you can do the movie. But you got to do the documentary first. That's yeah, my yeah. that's my call. I think we have time for one more. All right. Uh, this is a letter from Chris. Hello, Hi, Chris. Chris. Different from the earlier Christopher. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Uh, by the time you're reading this, I'll have had the awesome privilege of having you both on my show, the Who Cares Anyway podcast. Oh, it was actually just you. It was just me. <laughs> I couldn't make it. Yeah, because of scheduling, it was just me. But uh, yeah, listen to the Who Cares Anyway podcast that I am on. Mm. We'll talk to Chris. Uh, thank you for the appearance once again. It was a fantastic conversation. Recently, I partook in a little experiment with the Schmodown Fan League community, mm. where I place a poll of movies I have seen but aren't particularly fond of and rewatch. Lo and behold, I was surprising, unsurprisingly uh, set to revisit the 1985 classic Back to the Future. I hadn't seen it in over a decade and had some sour feelings develop toward it. Okay. Uh, I tried to keep an open mind to all of the tr- critiques I had in my head, but once the end credits rolled, I had to just to admit to myself that I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Lorraine, everything surrounding her character is kind of surprisingly gross when you think about it. Yep. On top of that, as a music-slash-history fan, the fact that Zemeckis completely whitewashes both civil right- the civil rights movement and the creation of rock and roll is frankly disgusting. Remember, it's the white kid who teaches Chuck Berry how to play rock and roll. Yes, I do. And not the other way around. Yeah. Uh, I felt it when he went out of his way to put too much on how he perceived the world around him into how his characters would act and how history would proceed. This then led me to an even bigger question. I found similar issues with Ghostbusters, E.T., mm-hmm. St. Elmo's Fire, mm-hmm. Rocky 3 and 4, yep. Rambo 2, oh, yeah. for sure, uh, Dirty Dancing, mm-hmm. among a few others in terms of how a lot of those filmmakers made some fairly terrible decisions in hindsight regarding too much subconscious racism, misogyny, terrible people being heroes, among other problems, that made me ask myself, is the 80s the most overrated decade in film in regards to blockbusters? <laughs> At least in my journey of film, most of the films from this era that I care about got swept under the rug at the time, such as The Secret of Nim, The Big Chill, Sid and Nancy, to name a few, and in clarity, I'm probably actually referring to 83-84 to 91-92, because I think 80 and 82 are two of the most important years of modern cinema. To finish this essay, uh, I have two questions. Am I clearly talking out of my butt and need to see more films of the 80s? Or what are the most overrated decades of film for you? Thanks for reading and coming to my, coming on the show. Um, okay, so you have entered an interesting time in your movie-watching journey, and I love it. Because this is the time when you start re-watching old things, and you start realizing that 
the things you grew up with maybe weren't so glowing. Um, they, and let's be honest here. They weren't. Neither were the things that literally anyone grew up with. Even the things we're going up with now, 20, 30 years down the line, people are going to notice more problems yeah, than well, we noticed now. Well, and because society is going to evolve and things that we evolve. think are, are really progressive and, and open-minded now are going to seem really backwards in 30, 40 years. Um, the 1980s took hold, especially 1984 in particular, that one year. That's a big year. Kind of took hold in the pop consciousness because of assholes my age. Uh, I was born in 1978. Um, I always called myself Generation Y. Evidently, I've been upgraded to Generation X over the years. Congratulations. Um, yeah. They started changing the names and years of the generations recently, so it kind of changed what I was. But uh, whatever, that's not neither here nor there. Some people say that's not even significant. But people my age... Uh, who grew up during this time of increased uh, blockbuster attention in the post-Star Wars age, when blockbusters and and uh, kind of children's fantasy films, for lack of a better term, mm. films like Back to the Future, uh, you know, things that were appealing to a childlike B-movie sensibility, films Goonies. like Goonies, E.T., all of those, yeah. um, were what really kind of crept into kids my age, our consciousness. And we took those kid films with us into adulthood. We obsessed about them. They were off to the side for a long time, even though Back to the Future was the highest grossing film of 1985. I think Back to the Future was always but pretty popular. It was always... There's, yeah, a, there's a few Go- that are... Yeah, same with Ghostbusters. There's a few movies from every decade that never yeah. lose their popularity. Uh, yeah, uh, Aliens was a hit. Uh, but a lot of people were growing up with these genre films uh, in the face of more adult fare. And there was this kind of divide between kiddie films and adult films in the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, and... The kids who were growing up with these films, uh, those were very important to them. They started saying, no, no, these are really important to us. They tried to push them into the, the middle of the conversation in a big way and uh, didn't discuss things like uh, like whatever adults were watching in the 1980s, which was Terms of Endearment. And, which was also a hit. Yeah. It, was it made a, a lot of money big, Terms a of big, Endearment. A big, big hit. Yeah. And uh, um, a lot of the big comedies of the 1980s, even those, even though some of those were kid-friendly, those aren't talked about as much anymore. How many? T- how often do you see nostalgia for Three Men and a Baby? It was the or, number one highest-grossing yeah, movie of the year. Yeah, uh, Three Men and a Baby. Three Men and a Baby was. Uh, look who's talking. Huge uh, hit. Police Academy Three. These movies were gigantic hits that weren't really creeping into uh, the kids' consciousness in quite the same way. Yeah. Yet these, uh, like a very finite number of very specifically codified genre cinema, were taken by Generation X, who then started getting jobs in the film industry and given right back to the public. So the 80s being overrated is just an infection that my generation is trying to pass on. At the same time, though, I do think that a lot of the things that we ascribe to the 80s are grandfathered in from just culture. Mm. Like, stories that are catering to young mindsets. Even though, like, children's literature, as we know, it is actually a relatively recent concept. Mm. Like, the idea of just making books for kids is something that came up in, like, the late 1800s. Yeah, like, Winnie the Pooh was... Was was, weird. Yeah, it was an aberration. Yeah, yeah, like, like, seriously, up until the late 1800s, kids read books that were intended for adults, or or Mm. if there were kids' stories, they were typically morality tales Mm. designed to make sure you got into heaven or whatever. Mm. Um, so, but then when we started getting them, we started getting something like Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, where the protagonist is a young boy, or kidnapped, where the protagonist is a young boy, or, um... Ra- we, Ragged Dick, or Struggling Upward, like the, the Horatio Alger stuff, which completely ruined America. <laughs> yeah, like, we, those kinds of stories, those sorts of inspirational, heroic tales, 
are, like we were discussing with the Alan Moore conversation, ultra-simplified. Mm. And when you ultra-simplify something, you remove a lot of the context that you would naturally place there as an adult. Mm -hmm. But when you're a kid and you're inexperienced, you don't realize it's not there. And then mm -hmm. when you rewatch it as an adult, you realize all this stuff is still there anyway. It's just not being talked about. Yeah, yeah. And so when you rewatch a lot of this stuff as a more mature adult, you're going to realize that some of it's really intensely fucking problematic. Mm -hmm. You were talking about The Lives of a Bengal Lancer, a film that I guarantee you the majority of the people who listen to this podcast haven't seen or heard of. I hadn't even seen or heard of it until we did our uh, big uh, mm -hmm. Only the Best Patreon podcast where yeah. we review every Best All Picture best nominee. Picture this was a Best Picture nominee in the 1930s. It was such a huge success, it started a new genre of adventure stories mm -hmm. in films. It was huge. Nobody talks about it anymore. Every blockbuster you think is amazing now will eventually be forgotten. I'm just warning you. Um, but, it, again, it had this oversimplified idea of colonialism and as a result colonialism got oversimplified it got whitewashed in many respects mm. literally and yeah and then it just got ushered out as fun product for the whole family and then people don't question that shit mm. that's not unique to the 80s however what is relatively unique to the 80s is that the 80s was the decade in which you were right we take it all with us and then we stopped questioning it. We, yeah. As we grew up, yeah. we didn't revisit it again 30 years later. We revisited every fucking day. Mm. Every fucking day we talk about Star Wars or Batman or Ghostbusters or whatever. Mm. And so we never have that like benefit of hindsight and distance. It's always present. And as a result, some people are just as eager to overlook either the lack of nuance or the underpinnings of sexism mm. or racism or there's a ton of fat shaming in a lot of those things goonies yeah. in particular always hurt my feelings um so we need to have that conversation and we need to be able to have that conversation in order to again move on it's also the kind of thing that i know some people are like well then i can't enjoy them anymore mm. a if it's that bad in the movie, maybe you shouldn't be enjoying it. <laughs> and B, you're going to need to deal with the fact that a lot of art is problematic. Yeah. Some of it is so problematic, we cannot enjoy it. And that's okay. It's okay for tastes to change and evolve even within mm. yourself. However, there's a lot of things where we can enjoy it, but every once in a while you have to go, and that part I cannot abide by, that part sucks. Mm. It's possible to say that. It's possible to acknowledge that a part of something you like sucks. And also enjoy the other part mm. without just pretending the bad stuff doesn't exist. No, I've, you just I've, need to have a more complicated sense of taste. Uh, and, and not even taste. Just a more complicated discussion about the art you, had, you enjoy. Just a, a more mature view toward that yeah. art that you're consuming. So to answer your question, uh, yeah, I think the 80s are overrated. I think uh, they were a time of uh, kind of increased simplification of our pop art. Uh, everything was turning super-duper commercial. There was... Uh, Analysis of this sort of thing was really discouraged at the time, and we happen to be living through a time right now where that kind of oversimplified pop discourse of non-analysis is really hip again. Uh, I mean, you look at just sort of the online culture right now, the, w the way critics are viewed right now. Mm -hmm. This kind of super important adult delving into the kid-friendly pop product is seen as anathema to enjoyment. Mm -hmm. And we, as critics, we get the brunt of that all the time, so we know it's out there. Yeah. And I think 
the 1980s sensibility fits right into that. And that's why we're seeing a lot of this resurgence of this, uh, this nostalgia for the 1980s. Mm-hmm. The 80s and the present are really, really similar. Yeah. And With the, there's ultra conservatives mm-hmm. in control of, of America. Mm-hmm. They're, they are doing way more for corporate America than they are for other people. We are seeing and the cor- uh, surges cor- yeah, in, in corporatized authoritarianism pop- all around the world. All around the and- world. And this sort of corporatization of pop entertainment is just happening again. It's just yeah. bigger now. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the my generation who grew up with that are just kind of insidiously infecting the present pop mentality with that exact same thing. And it bothers me that we keep refe- we keep regurgitating this and feeding it to new generations because I would love to see if we could just take a break from this for 10 years. Mm. What would that generation of people who weren't being constantly force-fed our remakes and leavings? Yeah. Like what would they make when they got to make art? Because all the like the movies and TV shows that we're watching now, they're mm-hmm. being made by people in their late twenties to forties and and beyond. Mm-hmm. They're not inspired by shit that happened in the two thousands. This is a critical fallacy I see a lot right now, mm-hmm. where people are talking about how, oh yes, well so and so was inspired by this filmmaker who made films like two years before. Mm-hmm. Probably not. Probably no, they were inspired really. by the same thing those other filmmakers were inspired by, mm-hmm. which is the stuff that they grew up on and like permanently imprinted itself onto their brain and how mm-hmm. they perceive and tell stories yeah yeah, yeah. i mean there's some people who do like spielberg is constantly looking for new inspiration you can see it in his work martin scorsese is the same way there are other filmmakers but a lot of filmmakers like uh uh, i I know you can't speak to him but i think Mm. it's fair to say that tarantino is mostly influenced by the 60s and 70s i i I can i can speak to that i can say yeah i I think think it's fair i think it's safe for me to to agree with that point he's not pulling too much inspiration objectively that's easy to see he's not pulling too much inspiration at least not you know clearly from the 2010s or the 20 or the 2000s or even the 90s he's going back to the stuff that he knows and loves and that stuff was stuff we usually encounter earlier than that Mm. so i would love to see if people who like don't have this steady diet of not just stuff from the 80s, but then stuff from the 80s that we kept bringing back over and over and over again. I want to see what they'd make because I bet it'd be interesting. Well, I bet it'd be exciting and new and amazing and if, weird. If you realize what, you know, if you saw what was happening in the late 80s, and that's the part that people don't have nostalgia for. Uh, well, they, they, they do, but it's like a different crowd. It's a when, different crowd. When uh, sort of sort of the indie market started to come into the, the, mm-hmm. the consciousness and we had filmmakers like Spike Lee uh, making movies and we had uh, you know, the Kevin Smiths and the Michael Moores and no, the, the Alison Anders and Smith was the 90s well but uh, yeah I suppose so Smith yeah. was the link, like, link, link, link later who first yeah, came yeah, up yeah, in 90 but yeah like, like the late and, yeah. 80s yeah Soderbergh exactly Sex Lies and Videotape all of these films that are coming up in the very late 80s and early 90s and were in, just completely impatient with all of that commercialism of the 1980s. It was, it was counterculture. Yeah, the, the counterculture wanted to have a voice, and it started to get one. And it was really interesting and varied. Yeah. Because people all had different takes all of a sudden. And you could have all of these new creative voices enter the marketplace. Um, even the blockbusters were really kind of sarcastic in the 90s. Uh Generation X did grow up on a lot of the leavings of the boomers popular culture. Like, if you look at stuff like the Brady Bunch and the Adams Family. But we've commented on this before about how those kinds of blockbusters were kind of sarcastic tongue-in-cheek takes on that material mm-hmm. the adams family were horrendous murderers but they, lo- <laughs> but they but they loved it yeah the opening scene of the adams family movie is them pouring hot lead on christmas carolers it's great or maybe it's hot oil i don't know but they're, they're it's not good they're harming people is my point <laughs> yeah you look at yeah the the whole deal with the Brady Bunch is the Brady Bunch hasn't changed but it's now the nineties the rest of the world has changed around them so and everyone kind of around like a, them sees them as horrifying weirdos yeah like they're outsiders and freaks 
you know, by the time we got to the late '90s, it was something like Pleasantville were just outwardly demystifying everything. Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm guessing something similar might happen. The marketplace isn't set up for it with Disney owning everything, but there's gotta be some kind of bold new voice that's just gonna punch through. And I feel like the the people that are carrying us through that are Blumhouse and A24. Blumhouse is carrying horror and doing subversive, weird, interesting things. Because they can afford to, because, because none of their movies cost more than $5 yeah, million. Their, their movies are all under $5 million, so and they're taking, weird taking a lot of risks. Some of their films really suck. Truth or Dare is awful. Yes. Uh, it's about a haunted game of Truth or Dare. That's a stupid idea. <laughs> and A24 is like scouring the earth for all of the most interesting new art artists and voices. And I think they're putting forth a lot of interesting uh, sort of film snobbery is coming back in a lot of ways. Yeah, A24 has become mm. a brand people respect and their mm. movies make us... I mean, they're not... Most of them probably don't crack 100 mil, but they're making money. They're like, making they're, money, yeah. There's yeah, a, a, they're a, making so I feel profitable like films. There, there is a voice coming up and those are the things we need to be focusing on and, and vaunting and talking about because they're the ones that are trying to take down this tide of shallow mm-hmm. pop entertainment. Yeah. And I feel like we're finally turning a corner when people are finally coming forward with important voices that are being heard and critics are actually being respected when they say, this is not healthy for us to be pouring this much money into one very specific corner of the marketplace and just making it bigger and bigger all the time. Especially the oversimplified corner yeah, where yeah. there's even the good examples aren't particularly nuanced. Yeah. All right, that's it for We've Got Mail. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. Uh, a couple of really long conversations of this one. Usually we'd like to get through more letters than that, mm. but uh, we'll be back soon. This week has been crazy pants. Yeah. You may have noticed we we had missed critically acclaimed this week. Uh, we just didn't have time to do it. We're going to do a big double episode this week, mm. uh, to, the next week to make up for it. Um, Cancel Too Soon's running a little late. Uh, full disclosure, Whitney and I are both film critics uh, yeah, who this is, are... This is award season, and it's yeah. always... Like, We're, our lives are always busy. And that's ra- true. Rather than just, like, just constantly apologize, just our schedules are a little bit hectic all right. the time. Well, I thought I'd pull back we the will, veil a little bit. Yeah, and just explain true. that like in November, all mm. the critics' awards bodies, some of which we were a part of, uh, are voting for things. And as a result, we have to see two months' worth of stuff mm. in less than one month. On top of doing the actual day jobs that we do, and it's making it hard to fit in time for the multitude of podcasts we also yeah. do. So we're, we're doing our best. It, our schedule is going to clear real soon, though, yeah. because we're going to run out of but movies. Yeah, we're, we're, we are one monthly movie behind, but we're prepared to do it, and we'll get that yeah. one to you pretty soon. And we'll have a, a secondary monthly movie shortly thereafter. Yeah. Uh, our recent episode of Cancel Too Soon should be coming within a couple days. That's the plan. Mark. That's um, the plan. That's and, the plan. And critically acclaimed will come out as usual, even though we list we missed last week's episode. We'll have a double episode. Yeah. It's to, all to coming together. It. It's, we just want to so, make sure we did a leopard's episode. We didn't want you to this whole thing to go fallow for a week. We're, we're aware. We're not lazy. We're getting to it. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're overworked is mm. the problem. Yeah. But um, we want to thank everybody for supporting the show, whether you're writing in, talking about us online, especially want to give a big shout out to our Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, they get a bunch of exclusive content, a bunch of which is coming soon, so stick around. Uh, if you're new, there's a ton of back catalog for shows like Only the Best, where we review every single Best Picture nominee in Academy Awards history in chronological order. Mm. We did an episode that included Lies of a Bagel Lancer. If you want to learn more about that, we talked about it a lot this week. Um, let's see, we've got uh, All Our Yesterdays, which is a Star Trek podcast. Uh, we'll have some couple episodes of that coming real soon as well. 
Um, tons of stuff. So please mm. go and check it out. Polls out the wazoo for, <laughs> for, for future for, content. But yeah, go to the Schmoes No uh, Twitter feed to vote in those polls. Uh, to vote in the poll for the two shot. The, the, everything two else shot, for yeah. Cancel Too Soon and The Big List. We hope you enjoyed our new podcast, which is all about the best noirs ever. Uh, we're going to do one giant list of recommendations every single month, and every single month those will be chosen via poll on our Patreon account. Uh, so we should be putting out a new poll for that probably pretty yeah, soon for uh, December. We, we're, I should mention this because we're actually getting a little close. We swore when we started up our Patreon oh, yeah. that if we ever got to 250 patrons, which seemed un attainable at the time. Really did. Yeah, we're actually creeping up on it. We're in the 220s now. But um if we manage to snag 250 of you to subscribe yeah. to the Patreon. We swore that we were finally going to talk about Joss Whedon's Firefly. Yeah, when now, we, we had started we had this thing, sworn we weren't going to do Firefly because Firefly is such a cult phenomenon that our voice wouldn't add anything to the conversation. Yeah, when we started the Patreon, it was all about our show Cancel Too Soon, which is about uh, TV shows that lasted one season or less. Mm. The question we got all the time was, "When are you doing Firefly?" Mm. And we decided it was too cliche, but we still got requests. So mm. if we hit 250, we're going to do one, and we're going to do one podcast. Per episode of Firefly and, of course, the we're, movie. We're, yeah, we're going to delve deep into Firefly. I've never seen it. At uh, all? Like, and, at all? Not, no, I saw the movie. That must have been weird. Uh, and, and it was. I, didn't, I couldn't really follow the movie. No, and, you and, couldn't possibly. And here's a really bizarre thing. I saw the movie around the same time I first saw that film Ultraviolet, the Kurt Vimmer film. <laughs> and for some reason, the two movies are kind of blended in my head. So I have details you know, from those two movies kind of crossbreeding. So know, I need to rewatch the movie. I have to rewatch the movie. Like, there's this, uh, in Ultraviolet, one of the conceits is you can hide a sword... Like, like the swords are, are a big thing in it. Yeah, yeah, sword fighting. But I, I can't remember which movie it is where they can store the swords, like, inside their bodies. There's, like, a, a little... Like, the hilt makes the sword vanish into another dimension, and they can pull the sword out. I think that's ultraviolet. I think that's ultraviolet. But there is something similar in, in Serenity. Yeah, there's a lot of sword fighting in Serenity as well. There's not so a lot. There's some. But there's yeah, some. yeah, yeah. Um, but in any case, we are at currently, as mm -hmm. I look at it now, we're at 223 patrons. If 27 more people sign up, we will do Firefly. We'll do Firefly. However, I'm going to tell you this right now. If we start dipping below 250, we stop doing them. <laughs> that's the rule. <laughs> if it's not 250, we can't do Firefly. Oh, that's true. So you can't sign up to 250 and then leave when we're at 249. Mm. We'll do them at 250, but once we, if, if, if it starts dipping to 249, you, you, we got to stop. You have to stick around through the whole of our doing the episodes for us to keep on doing those episodes. However, there's like yeah. 13 episodes of Firefly in one movie. It's not going to take us too long. No, it's, gonna it's take not going to take us too we, long. We really power through it. We can do that in a yeah. couple of months. So anyway. Yeah. Thanks for listening to our letters Thank episode. You so much. We're all over Twitter. We're all over the social medias. Uh, we're at Critical, Critic Acclaim on yeah. Twitter. Uh, our Patreon is uh, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And if you want to write into this show, it's letters at critically acclaimed.net. I am at William Bibiani on Twitter. I'm at Whitney Seibold. It's the one that's spelled the weirdest. And uh, seriously, thank you everybody for writing in. Thank you everybody for supporting the show. Sincerely, Bibbs and Whitney. Oh, and if you're the person asking about the person strapped to a chair and the weird head thing, someone on Twitter said it might be contact. Let us know mm. if it was contact, because the ending of contact where Jodie Foster is going through the space thing. Oh, and her face is like stretching yeah, around. Might be contact. Let us know if it's contact. Sincerely, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>